0: News, weather, traffic,
1: money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simmy. How much more work do we have to do to catch up on what we missed during the pandemic? You know, for kids, that gap is very real. It took a toll on their mental, physical, and emotional health. And getting them to talk about it is one of the ways that you know we're learning about all this and helping them to really move past it. But sometimes we need help to make those discussions happen. Well, the Canadian Children's Literacy Foundation has been working on that. And Ariel Siller, the CEO, joins us now to talk about. Thank you so much for being here this morning.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Simi. This is wonderful. Thank you.
1: What is lost and found? So, you know, the pandemic,
2: the COVID-19 pandemic has been such a challenge for children and families. And so we developed this project to the Lost and Found program to address two issues. Children's literacy levels have dropped and we need to work collectively to close that learning gaps. And often we talk about the effects of the pandemic on children, but the voice of children themselves, in their own words, is often missing. So the project is a coalition initiative. We worked together with a ton of different groups and that was led by the Canadian Children's Literacy and Foundation. And we created workshop toolkits. Then educators across the country use those toolkits to deliver literacy enhancing workshops. And since November... Together, we've reached 5,000 kids ages 0 to 12, and that's in every province and territory in Canada. And then children participating in those workshops came away with a story to share, expressed in writing, art, and video. And now all Canadians can see the digital exhibition that features kids' stories um, at lostandfoundstories.ca.
1: Oh, that's amazing. What kind of stories are they telling? What are they What are they showing us about what happened to them during the pandemic?
2: You know, there's such a tremendous, wonderful diversity of stories. You know, I think that one of the things that we've really seen is how kids can hold loss and joy at the same time together. And that's really an important life skill. And so there's just some really wonderful stories from um, B.C. and the Vancouver area more broadly. Um, we have um, particularly some stories from folks in Port Hardy talking about missing graduations, ski trips, um, I really loved an audio story from Patricia, who is age 11, who talks about living with her grandmother in um, Guilford Village, where her grandmother lives during the lockdown and having more time with family, but of course, also having a huge disruption in her life because she was no longer in her normal home. But so talking about how there were positives and negatives. And, you know, Isabel, who's age 12, you know, talked about going to the grocery store and just seeing the shelves emptier than she was used to, and how she understood that her fear, but also other people's fears, was driving that kind of scarcity. So, really, a broad range of stories that speak to a lot of the, the experiences that people had during the pandemic.
1: Ariel, is it usually a little tough to get kids of that age to talk about things like this? I
2: think it's really important to have structured and supported ways to do it. So I think kids want to talk. They want to share their stories and they want to feel that what they have to share is important. I think one of the key elements is providing a safe forum for kids to do that with educators who they know and trust, who are skilled at supporting children to do hard things. And so I think one of the key elements is providing a really important forum, and we look to do that to give kids a safe and structured way to share their stories.
1: Is there ways that we can help them now, now that we know that clearly there were things that they missed? These things took a toll, didn't it?
2: Indeed. You know, storytelling is a key part of how we make sense of our our lived experiences for both children and adults. And so part of helping kids move forward with confidence and energy into all that comes before them and us is really encouraging them to tell their stories and really listening when they do tell their stories. So, you know, we have we're lucky to have really talented and committed educators in all parts of Canada. And so as families, and we need to support those educators. We need to support our kids directly in sharing their stories and listening when they talk.
1: And how can people get a hold of this kit if they think, well, this is really great. I would like to try this.
2: Yeah. Lost and found has both the exhibition and also access to the kit. Any educator or really any family, if they wanted, could download the kit. It's free. It's available in a number of languages, um, including English, French, enough to took, Ojibwe, Cree, Inuactin and Arabic. Um, and one of the cool things is there's also a resource on the website that has a guide for parents as they and families as they go through the exhibit asking questions like which stories feel similar to your experience, which stories feel different. How do you feel when you see this exhibit? So even if families don't want to do the entire toolkit, they can still really interact with this website and help talk about their experiences. And then if kids write something or share something that they want to share more broadly, there's a way for families and educators to upload those stories to the exhibit, um, lostandfoundstories.ca.
1: Oh, that is so neat. Now, Erin, you've also said, though, that too many children in Canada currently lack the literacy skills they need to thrive? Like, what kind of skills are we talking about? Yeah,
2: that's a really really important and challenging point. You know, right now, some of the data shows that about 30% of kids age six um, are not meeting grade-level expectations. And for kids from low-income households, that number is as high as 40%. And so when we talk about what that looks like, it means not being able to... Um, read information on the page, but also not being able to really understand what they're reading. And so there's both the decoding piece, like how to actually make sense of the letters and the words, but it's also the comprehension, understanding what is a paragraph saying. And so those skills are really related. And then, of course, connected to writing as well. And one of the really there's a, there's key things you could do at every age and stage. So one of the really important things for little kids, so zero to four, is reading to kids, um, spending the time talking to them, reading to them, singing to them, having them become familiar with words, language, the constructs. And then for kids who are older, so five to ten, even older than that, continuing to read with them. Not you know not assuming that because they're starting to read on their own that they can just They're off and running, continuing to sit with your child, read with them, talk to them about what they're reading, asking them questions. So you read a sentence or two together and then think about what does that mean? What do you think is going to happen next? What happened before? So those questions around context are really important. But of course, we don't expect families to do this on their own. Educators um, are working hard at this, and it's really essential that collectively we support educators and the many community organizations who are working with families and children. We are lucky to work with Dakota Literacy Solutions in BC. We also have had a number of amazing partners who've helped on this initiative. Um, BGC clubs um, like in South Vancouver, Centre Island, South Coast, have been involved, the Mount Waddington Family Literacy Society, um, the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House, and South Vancouver Neighborhood House. All of these folks are key community resources, and they're helping families and children on their reading journey.
1: Okay, once again, what's that website? Lostandfoundstories.ca. Sounds good. Ariel, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Ariel Seller, who's the CEO of the Canadian Children's Literacy Foundation. Uh, they've developed some great programs to help boost those literacy skills, to help kids tell stories about how they've been impacted by the last three, four, five years. Uh, and certainly getting those kids talking about those experiences is one great way to help them move forward, right? This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard the news about the United States, United Kingdom and Australia formalizing plans to develop a fleet of nuclear powered submarines in Australia. And of course, the first question that we have when we hear that is, well, where is Canada in all of this? And what does this mean about Canada's strategy, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region? Well, joining us is Vincent Rigby, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister. Vincent, thanks for being here.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: So is Canada missing out or are we being left out?
3: I think it's an excellent question. And it's a question I think that needs to be posed to Ottawa. It needs to be posed to the government. Um, It it certainly stands out. And AUKUS has been around since 2021. There were questions at the time whether we'd been left out, whether we'd made a conscious decision not to join, whether we'd actually been invited or not. Um, But now this agreement is clearly... Uh, starting to move forward. This was a big, big announcement yesterday. Uh, they're putting some real teeth into it with the Australia purchasing nuclear-powered submarines, and it does look like Canada has missed the boat a little bit here. No pun intended. Um, it's clearly a move for the U.S., the U.K., and Australia to counter increasing Chinese aggressiveness and aggression in the region. Um, Canada recently released an Indo-Pacific strategy where it said that uh, China was a disruptive power and that Canada was going to do more to deal with this with this threat. But uh, here's a major, major deal involving three of our closest allies. And we're not there. So it does beg the question.
1: Are, are some of the challenges that I know Australia faces in regards to Chinese influence, are they similar to what we've been talking about here in Canada?
3: when it comes to foreign interference, absolutely. I think every every country deals with this with this problem. I mean, it's been playing out in Canada, in a in a in a very um, interesting way, given that it's become a bit of a political football over the last uh, over the last couple of weeks. But uh, this is a this is an issue that uh, a lot of our friends and allies have have dealt with. Australia, in particular, and um, they had their own crisis a couple of years ago, and in response. Um, they really put uh, some some teeth into some measures to try and confront this kind of uh, this kind of interference. I mean, Australia is very much at the coalface when it comes to to confronting the, the sort of China reemergence on the global stage and its moves in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and in many respects, Canada look, can look to Australia and, and, and learn a few things about how we may want to move forward in countering that threat.
1: Right. Now we've got the uh, President uh, U.S. President Joe Biden coming to visit this month. Uh, you know, within a, a, about a week or so. What does that mean for Canada at this point? I mean, it's been quite a while into his administration before he's come to visit here in Canada. But what what is this an opportunity for, do you think?
3: Well, I think that for Canada, traditionally, we've seen these kinds of sit-downs with the American president very much um, you know, sort of a, an opportunity to, to pursue economic goals, uh, jobs, economic growth uh growing the middle class as the government likes to say etc um and those are all important things very important things uh we'll also talk about migration we'll talk about the infl- inflation reduction act but i think um for the americans they are going to be thinking top of mind security and defense and i think especially in the wake of something like this uh the AUKUS deal plus everything you've been hearing recently with respect to china and the united states but also russia and just just a very dangerous world that's out there right now the u.s think is going to be coming to canada and going okay so what's your role here what how are you going to how are you going to play on the world stage how are you going to support us uh, in terms of uh, of dealing with growing threats so uh, there's a lot to be put on the table for canada what we're doing at home domestically uh, in terms of our interference and all these other threats that we've been we've been seeing in terms of uh, Chinese hostile state activities, what we're going to do in North America with respect to NORAD modernization so that we can confront um, threats over the Arctic and other parts of the, of the continent. And then finally, internationally, and again, not just with China, but with Russia as well. You know, we've we've provided over a billion dollars in assistance. To, to Ukraine. But a lot of people would say we should be providing more, especially when Ukraine is potentially going to be launching a major counteroffensive in the spring. Um, and do we have teeth to our Indo-Pacific strategy when it comes to China? And a lot of people would say no, that we haven't really got strong defensive security measures there. So, um, I mean, President Biden's going to be polite publicly and he's going to say all the right things. And you know, there's a bit of a bromance there, I think, between <laughs> between the president and the prime minister right now. But I believe in private, there may be some some messages that uh, we need Canada to really step up here and look at Australia, um, a country very similar in, in size to ours, and uh, they're doing much, much, much more.
1: Now, if we were left out of this security agreement, what do you think it says about how Canada is perceived by its allies?
3: Well, I think first of all, it's not an if. I think we we've been left out. And what's interesting is in the Indo-Pacific strategy, there's very little mention of how Canada is going to play with the big allies in the region. And, and AUKUS is is not mentioned at all, I don't believe, or if it is mentioned, it's mentioned in passing, we're not part of AUKUS. We're we're not part of this deal. And that's a a big, big thing in my my view. And it it does sort of send a signal that when the United States wants to deal in this region, it's going to turn to other powers. And Canada is not one of them, not at this point in time. And we're not one of those powers because we don't put hard capabilities on, on the table. Um, I mean, Australia is going to buy nuclear-powered submarines. This is a huge deal. They are going to link their defense technology bases together. Uh, there are something like 17 working groups within AUKUS. I think that's the right number, looking at all kinds of different defense technology in terms of artificial intelligence, quantum systems, cyber. We're not part of all this. And so you've got three countries, three countries that are part of the Five Eyes, by the way, Uh, our intelligence partnership uh, with these three countries plus New Zealand, and and suddenly we're on the outside looking in. So it sends a signal, I think, Um, and I don't think we are invited. and That's another issue. It wasn't that we were invited and we turned it down because it was just about nuclear-powered submarines. Some officials are saying, I just don't think we're invited because we're not seen as a serious enough player right now in that region.
1: Vincent, thank you so much for this.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Still to come on our show this morning, we've got those Peter Gabriel tickets to give away, so keep listening for your chance to win. Now, right now, we're going to talk about ChatGPT. Earlier, we talked about the latest version of this, which is called GPT-4, has just been released. Apparently, it is light years ahead of the previous version, which just came out in November. It is growing, developing, changing, adapting in leaps and bounds. It is everywhere. I mean, students are using it to complete assignments. Psychologists are using it to assess their patients. And yes, as you might expect, it is now pushing its way into the corporate world. Study conducted by Resume Builder, they did a survey, they polled 1000 business leaders to see whether they would consider replacing human employees with some version of artificial intelligence chat gpt or whatever and they were surprised to find out that nearly 50% 50 of those companies said they already have in some way started using or replacing workers with generative artificial intelligence It's crazy, right? Our producer, Bianca Rego, spoke with Marie Elizabeth Elcorti, founder of Elcorti Global Strategies PR firm, to find out why businesses are transitioning away from human employees and how it's going to influence the future of work.
4: Why are employers considering using ChatGPT as opposed to having human workers?
5: Well, I think you're able to be much more efficient with your time. It could potentially make certain processes more effective. You're able to kind of also have like a standard sort of form of doing certain types of work. And you may not need as much manpower as you did before. Like when I used it with a friend just to see what it was, I was blown away in both a very positive but also very scary way for me. Right? Like I asked them to write a song or wrote a song. I asked them to write a post it wrote a post you can customize you you know make it sound friendlier or make it sound you know more stern even if it's like an email about someone owing you money how do you say that professionally and you give them the details it does it and so it's it's very cool but it also makes the question of like are humans really needed to do some of these jobs and i think that's a very scary thought for a lot of people who are typically the ones doing those and so it has like an efficiency aspect but then it's also limited because humans created it right and humans are by nature flawed. So it's never going to be 100% perfect. And it's also limited by the amount of data that it has based on the year that the data is up to.
4: So how many workplaces and companies have started replacing their human employees with ChatGPT?
5: I mean, I think it's still early to have like the data of that, but I think it's something that a lot of employers are significantly considering, especially as more updates have been made to it right like it's still the early this is like you know 1.0 one of the biggest concerns for me is not just plagiarism but it's about the growth of my employees right let's say there's someone who's an excellent writer and they're just using it to just get ideas okay cool right to some extent but what if someone's not a great writer or early in their career And they're utilizing this. And I don't know if what I'm reading is their writing or is this AI's writing. So how am I supposed to help this person grow? And like, is this truly as creative as it can be? Is the data that's being used in it the correct data that I need to pitch story? In some ways, you have to do double work if you want to make sure that what you're sending is credible and accurate based on what you're trying to portray.
4: Do you think ChatGPT is capable of creating the same quality of writing as humans or even better, especially if they're not as strong as a writer? I think it depends on what you're asking
5: it to write. For instance, I asked it to write a social media post, right? It wrote a decent post. It even had hashtags and an emoji. It was still decent, but is there someone's voice in it? No. Is there someone's tone in it? No. No. Because that's something that's hard for an AI, at least at this beginning. You can make it sound friendly, but like you can make anyone sound friendly. How are you differentiating you and me, like when you're trying to create a a vibe with your content? And I think that's something that is hard to replace because that's based on an individual, right? It's not based on an AI or a history of the world. It's based on that person. So I think in some ways it can do certain things better especially if someone struggles with writing of course like if you're just solely basing on writing and not creativity and individual thought, i mean that's possible but it should not replace someone's ability to think for themselves someone's ability to be creative for themselves and actually do research and like all these different facets Because if you're trying to grow,
4: not just as an individual, as a company, it's about the people that you're cultivating. Like an AI is not going to replace everyone. What are the jobs that are most susceptible to being replaced by AI? I mean, literally any job that you need to write pen to paper. (laughs) I mean,
5: HR, tech, PR, journalism. But I mean, anything that you have pen to paper for really it's, it's not it's not like one industry solely. It's, it's literally anything where you need to write something.
4: I was looking at the top 10 different jobs that could be the most vulnerable to AI, and one of them was teachers. And I'm wondering, because yeah. as a teacher, you do need a certain amount of empathy, and you do need a certain amount of care for these children. How would that work? In terms of replacing a teacher, I think that's hard because there's a huge
5: portion of teaching that's very visible right unless you're talking about like online learning with no videos to some degree it could replace a little bit but i think teaching is such an in-person visual experience where you're not just reading text you're learning from someone you know there's someone interacting with you in some ways like yes it may have an impact but i don't think it's going to have the same degree as like other places where you're editing documents okay maybe coming up with lesson plans. I mean, lesson plans is a very creative thing, right? So if you utilize ChatGPT for that, you're not catering it based on the needs of your class. Because, like, in my opinion, again, I'm not a a teacher, but depending on the class or the the intelligence of your class, it's going to determine how you're putting together your lesson plan and then based on the state test. This is even more of a problem to use ChatGPT because, like, they can really actually cater to their classes more right, of what their what their kids actually need. So I think it's it's hard to imagine that it's going to fully replace unless we're going to just be very unfair to a lot of children in terms of where their where their educational learning level is at at any current point, because then a lot of kids are going to be left behind if you're going to utilize chat GPT as like a standard for education.
4: No, I agree, because that will definitely have an impact on the education of our future generation, and not only that, just the ability to have personal conversations and personal connections. Well,
5: we're already having that issue, right? Like, I have a friend in uh, overseas whose kid can't even talk at five, can't even say basic sentences because they're on their phone all the time. They're utilizing technology too much that they can't even have a conversation. So, the more that we're integrating, like tech is amazing. But at the end of the day, it's how do you utilize it and how do you manage it? And if it's becoming more and more ingrained, if ChatGPT's is going to become like a real thing, then there should be in the long run, like parental controls, you know, maybe age restrictions. Who knows? That like kids are actually learning. Kids are learning how to do research. Kids are learning how to write. Kids are learning how to think for themselves, have fun with it. But it shouldn't be the primary source of any type of written work. That's produced for someone else to consume.
1: That is our producer Bianca Rego, who is speaking with Mary Elizabeth Elcorti, founder of Elcorti Global Strategies PR firm, on the number of workers out there that are perhaps being replaced by ChatGPT as it becomes better and better. If on a way in, Simi at CKNW This is Morning's with Simi. If you are a child in government care in this province, it used to be that that care, that support, ended at age 19. That was it. No supports, nothing. It was done. That's not the case anymore, though. In fact, the program known as the Tuition Waiver Program is now being expanded to provide more opportunities. Now, this is a good news story, so we thought let's hear all about it. Selena Robinson joins us now, the Minister of Post-Secondary Education. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. So what is this expansion all about?
0: So if you recall back in 2017, uh, when um, the Democrats formed government, um, we'd heard about a program at Vancouver Island University where the university itself was waiving tuition fees for for youth formally in care. And as a government, we recognized that we had a larger role to play in this, and we developed the Provincial Tuition Waiver Program, um, and it was for those who were in care up to the age of 26. Um, and the program has been running for the last number of years. Um, Melanie Mark and Kat Conroy put it together. It was a very emotional program, um, recognizing that, that youth who've been in care um, don't have the opportunities that those who are, are raised in a in a family um, get, get to have around accessing post-secondary education. In fact, it used to be that when you were 19, you were kicked out of most programs um, and you were left on your own to try to find your pathway into independence and we know that that hasn't been effective um over the last five years we've heard that um that many um uh, 1900 young people who have made use of this um, have really benefited and so we've expanded the program um starting in august it's uh, for those who have ever been in care in our province um, and they can access post-secondary education
1: so that means adults perhaps like if, even if they're older they've started their families they can go back to school
0: Absolutely, um, and we uh, when we look at the numbers, we're estimating about 50,000 British Columbians are eligible for this program. Not all of them um, will 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 flood back into school, um, but it's certainly open to any of them. We recognize that um, you know when government um, takes on the care and the responsibility of young people, that you know it doesn't just that care doesn't just end at the age of 19. So as of August 1st, there will be the opportunity um, to go to any of our pu- our uh, public post-secondary schools. Um, and um, and get the education that they need. It's part of our Future Ready program, Simi. Um, this is about making sure that we have a workforce that is ready and able to participate in the economy. We know that with... Um, with a million job openings over the next decade, 80% of them will require some sort of post-secondary education, whether it's becoming a Red Seal chef or a Red Seal carpenter or um, getting a degree in nursing. Um, these are opportunities that are now open for anyone who has been through care.
1: You mentioned that about what 1,900 people have taken up this program. Is that It feels like, is it not widely known enough or is this something that you hope those numbers will grow?
0: Well, we know those numbers will grow. We know that there's an additional 1,000 students right now in our system who are now, as of August, will be eligible for the tuition waiver. So we know that there are people over the age of 27 who are in our system. So they will immediately benefit. Um, And we're continuing to um, let people know that this program, and I'm glad you're having me on the show because we want to let your listeners know if, if they know of someone or if they've been a former youth in care, that this opportunity is available to them as of August.
1: Okay, was it tough setting this up? I know you said you've gotten all schools on board. Was there any resistance to this?
0: None at all. This has been, um, we, you know, we've been doing this for a number of years. Um, there's um, uh, pretty much all of our, our public post-secondaries have students um, who um, were formerly youth in care. Um, and I think, you know, when I, I, I listened to the story of Mallory Woods, who was a student at VIU, tell us, Um, A story at the announcement a couple of days ago um, when we did it at VIU, she talked about um, at 16, finding herself living in an RV in a parking lot, um, all all on her own and trying to make the pieces fit so that she could feed herself and take care of herself. Um, And now she's been able to make use of this opportunity to go to school at VIU. um, And she's going to be graduating, I believe, the end of this next. She's got one more year. And she has a 4.0 GPA, which is absolutely outstanding. She wants to become a counsellor and she has dreams and we've helped her achieve those dreams.
1: Like this is one of my favourite government programs that I've ever heard of uh, since the moment it was announced. Uh, Since the moment actually Vancouver Island University was doing this. How how long do you think, Minister Robinson, before you can really see the results of this, right? Is this a, a generational change, do you think?
0: I, I think this is, I mean, first of all, it's significant and we're already seeing the change. I mean, Mallory, in, te- in her telling her story, she talked about on a community level, the tuition waiver program sounds to me like a love letter from the university to potential students. And what she said was, it, 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 you know, you've been. she said that the university says to her, you've been through something impossibly hard, but you're welcome here. No explanation needed. And she said, and this is the part that touched me, she said, it's an example of unconditional love institutionalized what Uh it says is that we as government we as a society are wrapping our arms around you and helping you make the the path that you want um, available to you because it's been so hard for you Um, and i and i haven't come across anyone who thinks this is a bad idea this is a really good program in fact yesterday i met with um uh, the minister of post-secondary education from ireland um, we were um, exchanging ideas, and when I told him about this idea, he's writing it down madly and going to take it home to Ireland.
1: Oh, it is a great idea. What other supports are offered, though? Right, because sometimes it's not just about the tuition.
0: Absolutely, we have a three thousand five hundred dollar grant that's available to help with additional supports that might be needed um, around textbooks, or if you need a computer, um, you know, internet costs. We, we want to, you know, we want people to be successful. We also have, um, you know, this is available not just for degree programs or four year apprenticeship programs. It's available if you want to do a diploma, if you want, you know, a, a part time as well, recognizing that for some, they'll already have a family, they'll already be working, and um, it might be really hard to sort of leave your life to go to school. So, really uh, prepared to work with people where they're at and support them um, to. Um, further their education so that they can have a career that is meaningful, that pays the bills, and that allows them to participate fully uh, to their their greatest potential.
1: Okay. And is it complicated to get this? Like, what what is the process like?
0: Well, it's a a pretty simple process. All of our post-secondary institutions know all about it. They're big proponents of it. And all anyone needs to do is to
1: ask about it. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for sharing this story.
1: Selena Robinson is the Minister of Post-Secondary Education. They have announced an expansion of the tuition waiver program. That will start this August. And so what it means is for any person who has ever been in care, in government care, foster child, whatever the case was, you will have your tuition waived for post-secondary education. Now, they've been doing this, but it has been for people up to the age of 26. Uh, and you know this is huge. when you think about that for it, it seems crazy that for decades, when you aged out of government care, you hit 19, that was it right? When that's not the case. If you have parents, loving parents, that's not what happens is that you have help, you have support. But if you were in government care, you aged out at 19, boom, they were done. The government was done with you. And this has been a big step, I think, towards helping uh, kids who have been in care. Uh, 1,900 students have done it. I think another thousand, she said, are, are currently in it. And we'll see how many more people take that up. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been hearing in the news about how TransLink got a lot of money yesterday from the provincial government, $479 million. And it is supposed to help them uh, keep fares at a stable level, essentially for operating purposes. But there's so many questions with this, right? Like, if they need this now, what's going to happen next year? This is a one-time cash infusion. What does this say about TransLink? And does this mean that they talk about, you know, needing a new funding you know, type of formula for them moving forward. Does this mean that's another step closer to mobility pricing? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Trevor Halford, the B.C. Liberal Party opposition critic for Transit. Thanks for joining us this morning.
6: Thanks for having me, Simi. I appreciate it.
1: Now, what do you hear when you heard that announcement and and everything that was said? What did you hear?
6: Well, a lot of things. There are some of the things we didn't hear. uh, And I'll talk about mobility pricing in a second um we we've heard for a long time that there's a significant shortfall at Translink. i don't think that that's unknown to us it's, it's you know it's it's known to government but again hey, we had a premier say last week that uh that you know one-time funding should not go to operational dollars because you're going to be in that same situation again the year after when they need that funding that's exactly the case in point with Translink, and i think you just said that is that They're going to be in this position again and again and again. And we need to make sure that we have solutions going forward um, that aren't going to keep putting us in this position. And government needs to figure out what those solutions are.
1: Now, why do you think people aren't going back to transit in the same numbers?
6: Well, uh, a couple things. I think number one is I think the pandemic has uh, shifted things dramatically. I think that you're seeing uh, a lot of people working from home Um, You even look at what the government's own policy was, right, in terms of what they've done now, in terms of having people um, being able to apply for positions throughout the province um, that was usually out of Victoria. Um, You know, what that means is you can argue whether that's good or bad, but you are getting a lot less people traveling into the office. um, And so that means that there's going to be less people using public transit.
1: Do you think some tough decisions have to be made then?
6: Well, I think for sure. I think, you know, at the end of the day, public transit is an absolutely vital part of of what we need to do. Um, So is public infrastructure. So is the fact is that, you know, we should be driving across uh, a Massey bridge right now that should have been opened and uh, that could have been extended for rapid transit out to South Surrey. We haven't done those investments. Right. So we're seeing we're falling behind on the infrastructure and we're obviously falling behind on the public transit part of it as well.
1: Okay, well, how you talked about mod- mobility pricing. Uh, do you think that is something that is in the plans? Like, is that the impression that you've got? Well,
6: yeah, yeah, listen, um, I okay, so I, I listened very carefully to the Premier's press conference yesterday, and I know that uh, Richard Zussman asked him twice specifically about mobility pricing. I would have thought that when somebody asked me about something, that is a great time to clear it up and put it to bed. He refused to answer it. Richard gave him another question. He refused to answer it again. So the, what that tells me is yes, they are actively considering mobility pricing. If well, you he, get asked he, that- He did clarify it,
1: that later, right? He did come out afterwards and say, no, no, that's, that's not what we're thinking about doing. Well,
6: I, I don't know why you wouldn't clarify that when you're asked twice, right? right. And yeah. he said, here's the opportunity to take it off the table. Will you do that? And he absolutely refused to do that. And then, you know, an hour later, he puts out at the end of a tweet, like, I think he can do better than that and clear up that confusion.
1: What do you think, though, is the funding model that will work to make this happen? You talked about investing in infrastructure. How do we invest in infrastructure if we can't get the ridership numbers back up? Or do you think it's a case of build it now and they will come?
6: Well, I, I think we have to make those investments. I think, too, is obviously that we have to do that. Uh, I We did notice that the federal government wasn't there yesterday. Um, I think the province and uh, mayor spoke out about disappointment on that, but we need to make sure we're doing that in partnership with all levels of government. But we need to make those investments, right? Like that, you know, if you look at, we are we are suffering from massive traffic congestion. Now, there's listeners in your car right now that are going through the Massey Tunnel, the, the, the Patella Bridge, uh, different areas throughout this province where congestion is absolutely squeezed. If there's an accident inside that massy tunnel, you're looking at forty five minutes to an hour and fifteen minute delay. I've I've been through that numerous times and you know, that shows that we are way, way behind when we come to making investments in infrastructure and those investments should have been done by now.
1: Well what about Highway One? What about improving ridership and getting more people on transit through that corridor?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I can Highway One for sure, and we hear that a lot, and even even in my area right now, I live down in in South Surrey, and you know, down by the border, and it's a it's a kind of a newer community here. But there's four thousand of us down here, and right now you have to cross uh, Highway ninety nine, and then you have to cross King George Highway, which is about I would say about five kilometers from where I am right now to access public transit.
1: Yeah, I grew up out that way. I know exactly. I know exactly that so frustration. You know oh, I know. You know
6: where the- yeah. Pink is, right? Yeah. It was
1: never an option though. That's a problem with that area, is that transit was never an option because it was an hour in between buses and it really wasn't going to get you where you exactly. wanted to go.
6: Exactly. So what happens now is we've got a lot of young families living where I am right here uh, in South Surrey. And they and there's a lot of new Canadians here as well. And they have zero access to public transit. So I see people walking down 8th Avenue, crossing Highway 99, crossing King George Highway just to get to a bus that will eventually transfer them to another bus. And I think we've got to know that we've got to do a lot better than what we're doing right now.
1: Okay, so then if you could advise TransLink, if you could say, hey, look at this, (laughs) what would you tell them to do?
6: Well, I I would look at one is we've got to make sure we have a sustaining funding model. And we've got to do that in partnership with the provincial government. And the federal government, to be honest with you. And it cannot be done on the backs of commuters and it cannot be done on the backs of drivers. There's no way that that can happen. People are stretched enough. Affordability is at its worst right now in B.C. So we got to find different ways to do that. The province and the federal government have to find a way to have a sustaining funding model. It is, it is not fair. It's not even fair to TransLink to have to go through this every single year. Um, at the eleventh hour, and then all of a sudden, come up with the money and say, "Okay, well, we can do this." And then we're going to be having this exact same conversation next year.
1: Yeah, it, it, do you think more bus service would be helpful? Yeah, I think more
6: bus. Like I just gave the example of where I live, right? And even right. in Grandview, Grandview Heights, like I, I think that. But you I wonder, do you, do you cut Grandview,
1: back a little bit on some of the big infrastructure projects and make room for more bus service?
6: I, I think you've got to do both. I think you've got to do both, and I think it's important because, as you said, if you know when you build this stuff out, I, I think you you tend to get more more service and and more ridership. But, you know, at the end of the day, we need that infrastructure built, and we need it built on time, and we need it built on budget. And that's one of the disappointments now when we talk about the Massey Bridge getting canceled. We wasted a hundred million dollars. You know, the government made a decision to scrap a hundred million dollars and replace the tunnel with a tunnel they're replacing the patella bridge a four-lane bridge with a four-lane bridge that's not thinking for the for the future we need to expand that infrastructure now the thing not, about th- not okay
1: i know everybody now. says that about the patella bridge but i always have to ask somebody when they say this where yeah. is that traffic supposed to go new westminster does not have room yeah. for more lanes of traffic to come through where is that traffic supposed to go
6: well, I think we've got to work with the U.S. Minister to figure out how we do that, right? But at the end of the day, eventually, there's going to be a solution to that. So why don't we provide that solution on the Patella Bridge right now instead of doing it, doing it a decade from now at a more higher cost?
1: So you think we're going to have this same conversation a year from now?
6: On the funding, absolutely. I hope we don't, but um, uh, you know, like I said, and the Premier even said it, his words were, when you use these dollars for operational costs, you are going to have the same conversation a year later. Those were his words, not mine.
1: All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Trevor Halford is the opposition critic for the BC Liberals for transit and transportation, talking about, you know, funding problems for TransLink. Sure, they got this big injection yesterday. It's a one-time, you know, one-year funding of $479 million. What happens next year? How do they get things back on track? Has your transit going experience changed? That's the issue, what it really comes down to, right? Is that not everybody has come back to using transit.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We know invasive species are a problem, right? And there's so many different ones out there. But I have to say, these latest stories about football-sized goldfish as an invasive species have certainly caught my attention because you know what? It's the visual. Just picture that for a second. What is going on that has allowed this to happen out there? Well, Brian Heiss is with us now, natural resources professor at Thompson Rivers University and former chair of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Brian, thanks for being here.
7: Oh, good morning to me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Have you seen one of these things? Oh, I've caught hundreds of them, yes. I'm sorry, <laughs> so how big was it?
7: It was 25 centimetres, so it's about a football size.
1: A goldfish?
7: Yeah, goldfish. So they start out very small, so they're in your aquarium. They're not getting an awful lot of food, and so they're, they're restricted there. But once people release them out into our local lakes, they, they grow to the size of a football. And in fact, that's not even their potential, because in Australia, they've been caught at up to 41 centimetres long. So that's like a football and a half.
1: Where is this going on, Brian?
7: Basically, uh, throughout the world. If we look at, at a world map, they're all—they're basically all over the world. Within British Columbia, I guess they started out in the Lower Mainland, primarily in little ponds. But now we're finding that people are putting them into local lakes all over the province. And a lot of these lakes, while well, we value as uh, good lakes for our rainbow trout fishery, and so that is a threat there—that they could either uh, compete, outcompete some of our local trout populations, or they also carry disease, and so they could spread disease to our salmon populations.
1: And is this just because people have decided, I don't want this goldfish anymore, so I'm going to go dump it?
7: That's the main reason. Yes, exactly. So you have somebody who has a goldfish, and after a few years, they they don't want it anymore. And rather than take it back to the pet shop or give it to somebody else, what they do is they think it's okay to release it into the wild, into their local pond, their local lake or river. And that's a huge mistake. And that really applies to all release of pets, whether you have a snake, a bird, or a fish these animals don't do well in the wild in Canada, generally speaking, and once they get in there, they don't have uh, native predators there, and so they can really take over the ecosystems.
1: How much of a problem is this causing in BC?
7: It's it's a, more of a concern right now. Uh, what we know is that these goldfish, when they get into our local lakes, they start rooting around the bottom. They feed on the bottom called the benthic environment, and they're uprooting plants, and they're causing turbidity, which is extra mud, basically, in the water. But we know that they are, in some cases, for example, eating the eggs and larvae of amphibians. So we know that amphibians are at risk around the world right now. They're in decline. So I wouldn't want to see goldfish reducing our our populations of these amphibians in British Columbia, as well they eat the same food. We've done uh, diet studies, my students and I, and we know they're eating the same food that trout feed on. So whether that's in the water column, eating zooplankton, or whether feeding on things like chironomids on the bottom of the lake, we know they can compete with those other fishes.
1: Okay, so what can we do about this? I think the big thing
7: is just uh, don't let it loose. There's a number of organizations that the governments are working in this. Organizations such as the Invasive Species Council of BC are trying to get the the word out to not let your pets into the wild, regardless of of what that water body is. And I think that governments have to step up a little bit more working with the pet trade. I'd like to see pet stores be more open with uh, consumers as to the ability to bring back pets once they no longer want them.
1: Okay. Now let's say obviously some people will stop doing that, but they're still out there. Now I work with somebody who loves to fish and they would be like, I'd love to catch one of these things. Is that helpful? You You want people who are fishing out there to catch these things? Well, certainly
7: if they do happen to catch a goldfish, absolutely (laughs) take it out of the lake. But don't put it
1: back. Yeah, take it out of the lake. Don't put it back.
7: Take it out of the lake. But I wouldn't want to see them as a a targeted species because then people might spread them from one lake to another just to create that opportunity. We have that concern right now with other species such as uh, smallmouth bass in British Columbia.
1: What's going on? What do you mean?
7: Well, we have people who are spreading bass from one lake to another. We actually... uh, found one person with, with smallmouth bass in the trunk of their car, in, in a bucket going from one place to another. And when they do that, uh, smallmouth bass are predatory. They will eat our local fish. And so there's concerns, for example, down in Cultus Lake, in the lower mainland, of them actually eating endangered sockeye salmon in that lake.
1: Brian, are you telling me that people take it upon themselves to like repopulate or, or populate a lake because they think, I would like to fish for this here?
7: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's very self-serving. It's selfish, but this kind of behavior we're seeing over and over again, whether it's bass or yellow perch or uh, northern pike, a lot of game fish, which are great fish. I, I love to catch these fish on the other side of the Rockies, but they really just don't belong in B.C., and if they really take off and they're going to be aided by climate change, warming waters, then what we're going to see, I think, is potentially a decline in our local salmon and trout populations.
1: Okay, is there um, any jurisdiction that you can think of, Brian, that has dealt with this large mutant goldfish problem?
7: No, <laughs> not that I'm aware oh, of. Oh, no. People are, no. Uh, for example, Australia's been ahead of the curve there. They've been dealing with this quite a bit in Western Australia, but they don't have a solution that I'm, that I'm aware of. And in, in Australia, for example, they move around a lot. They've moved up to 231 kilometres in one year. This is goldfish moving all over the all over the, the state. So it's amazing.
1: How, do they, how are they managing that?
7: Well, they're really tough. They're almost like a super invader because they have some amazing characteristics. They'll eat just about anything. They uh, produce, each female will produce 50,000 eggs and she'll spawn three times during a summer. They're able to withstand wide temperature range. They can hand, handle salt water and they even can go without males to reproduce. Uh, using uh, a special process, gynogenesis, the females are able to use sperm from another species of minnow. And what it does is it doesn't fertilize the eggs, but it activates them. They start uh, developing. And so the female goldfish will produce clones of herself in the lake. Okay. So they're a pretty scary fish.
1: No kidding. Just listening <laughs> to you describe that, I was like, this sounds like a mutant nightmare, Brian.
7: It it is. Fortunately, they only get to the size of footballs. If they got about three feet long, I think we'd, we'd be in trouble here. I don't know. Even, uh, so, you are know. You
1: running across a football-sized goldfish to me sounds even terrifying if I saw that out yes. there. <laughs> so,
7: and they're in pretty large numbers. Uh, the government has been doing some electrofishing, which means you put a current through the water, you, you stun the fish, and then you uh, dip net them out of the lake. They've been doing that up at Dragon Lake near Cornell for a number of years now. And they get a few thousand fish each spring when they do it. And, and that's the best time the Goldfish spawn in the shallows on plants around the edge of the lake. So, springtime is the best time to get out there and and address the goldfish problem.
1: Are you saying every time they do it, they manage to get a few thousand of these giant goldfish?
7: Absolutely, yes. That's that's how numerous they are once they get established in a lake.
1: That is crazy. Absolutely crazy.
7: It is. I don't think people are already aware of that. So and I think if they knew that was going to happen, hopefully they wouldn't release a little Goldie into their local lake.
1: Right. They could, the hard, it's a hard time, I think, for people to picture that. Right. So if the education aspect of this, is there a way to do you think do this in a more strict fashion? You mentioned, you know, the stores where these fish are sold, they, they obviously need to take a more active role here too. be more responsible for their product.
7: I I think so. I think that, yeah, they they really should. I think they need to educate the public. I think they have to be very clear and they should have return policies where if someone does no longer want their their pet, in this case goldfish, that they can bring them back to that store just so that they don't have to deal with with releasing it into the wild.
1: Yeah. Where can people find more information, Brian?
7: I think they could uh, contact, probably the best thing would be to contact the Invasive Species Council of BC.
1: I think so too. Oh, listen, thank you so much for this. This is very illuminating.
7: well, thank you so much for having me, and it was a lot of fun. It was <laughs> a care.
1: lot of fun, actually, yeah. uh, even though we're talking about something that seems kind of horrifying, but that's Brian Heiss, who's a natural resources professor at Thompson Rivers University and former chair of the Invasive Species Council of BC, talking about these giant invasive Goldfish. I mean, it seems harmless, right? You don't want your fish anymore and you think, well, I don't want to kill it. So I'm just going to dump it in this body of water right here. Not a good idea. Please do not do that. They are seeing football-sized goldfish invading BC waterways all over the province. And there is some serious concern about how that's going to impact or how it is impacting some of the local uh, fish populations or too. So please don't do it. Take it back to the store where you got it and let them deal with this situation, right? And I'm sure many people can help you out with that. Just please don't put it in a lake out there somewhere or river out there.